How is the process of digitization changing the world? From discussions about intimacy to the surveillance of publics, we will bring you ideas and speakers that question how digital elements are transforming our everyday lives. Welcome to the Global Digital Cultures Podcast. Welcome everybody to the webinar on global digital inequalities, which is organized by the Global Digital Cultures at the University of Amsterdam. My name is Guillén Torres and I'm a PhD researcher and a lecturer at the Media Studies Department and I will be moderating this event. Um, today we're focusing on how does digitalization, digitization reshape the distribution of cultural, economic and political resources around the globe. And to address this topic, we have two great speakers with us today. We have um, Nishan Shah and Padmini Ray Murray. Nishan Shah is Director of Research and Outreach and Professor of Aesthetics and Culture of Technologies at Artes University of the Arts in the Netherlands. And when I introduce Nishan later, I will tell you a little bit more about his work, but just for now, I wanted to mention that so you know who he is. And Padmini Ray Murray is the founder of Design Beku, a collective emerging from a desire to explore how technology and design can be decolonial, local, and ethical. Before we go directly to the speakers, I just want to say a little bit about the organizations of this event. Um, this webinar is part of a series organized by the Research Priority Area at the University of Amsterdam, Global Digital Cultures, which is focused on how digitization is transforming cultural practices. Past seminars, which you can find in the video section of the website, have focused on programmed racism, digital public infrastructures, and digital sex work, for example. But today we have asked our speakers to dwell on three main questions. How is digital inequality framed in different parts of the world, and what are the consequences of this framing, what can be the pitfalls of certain rhetorics of inclusion, and what are the current challenges of a politics of design directed at social justice. Um, we intend this to be a very interactive seminar, so you are welcome to send us your questions in the chat. We will first ask the speakers to present and then to respond to each other. Um, and then we were going to open the floor to the audience. We're going to start first with Nishan. So let me give you more information about his work. Um, Nishan Shah works at the intersection of body identity, digital technologies, artistic practice, and activism with a specific focus on non-canonical geographies. And his current interest is in thinking through questions of artificial intelligence, digital subjectivity, and misinformation towards building inclusive, diverse, resilient, and equitable societies. He has a new book, uh, Really Fake, which will come out in spring 2021 with the University of Minnesota Press. Um, so it's now your turn, Nishan. Thanks a lot. Uh, thank you so much. It is such a pleasure to be a part of this conversation. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, this is, as I was just mentioning, this has been a fantastic set of conversations to engage with. And perhaps it is telling that we are doing this online um, because we're kind of immediately expanding and narrowing the scope of participation for people around the world, right? Like there is no doubt that this uh, Zoom meeting uh, allows for more people like us to join in, but also clear that it excludes even more people who are not like us um, from participating in this conversation, very clearly showing us that scale is not an answer to digital inequality. And yet one of the fundamental drivers of digital expansion is the value of universal access. 
right? We've been um, uh, trained to understand that the foundational problem when thinking about uh, digital inequality and in, uh, inequity is framed as a problem of access. And there has been a huge amount of attention given, especially in infrastructure studies or ICT for development, uh, given to conditions of access uh, and the infrastructure that is needed for it. Uh, in fact, the focus on universal access has gained so much traction as a way of establishing digital equity that it's almost become like the single most invested area from governments, civil societies, tech philanthropy, and private actors focusing on it. And listen, I'm, I'm not saying that universal access is not necessary and important because it does create a more level playing field. But it's also important to recognize that universal access as the solution to the problem of the digital divide, you know, this world of the haves and the have-nots, needs perhaps more thought and nuance. And I hope to do that today uh, by anchoring us in a small case study from India on our universal access. I also want to make a small disclaimer that Padmini and I both work in India. We are often from India, uh, but this is not a case to be made about Indian exceptionalism. Uh, we might locate our stories and experiences within India, but I think there is a global resonance here which needs to be picked up on, right? So I don't want this to be an India talk, uh, but it just happens that both of us come from India, so that's the geography we are going to speak about. So um, I want to talk about particularly this one case that happened uh, starting in 2013. So in 2013, Facebook, uh, along with a consortium of other technology actors like Google and Apple, uh, have taken up the challenge of providing universal access to people in countries with technology infrastructure deficit. Um, they have targeted mostly countries in what is called the Global South, uh, and through their not-for-profit organization called Free Basics, they have been working with national governments to build universal access infrastructure uh, in their countries. Uh, in 2013, in partnership with the largest telecommunication networks in India, Reliance Telecommunication, Facebook launched a campaign called Free Basics that promised to give free internet access to anybody in the country with a Reliance mobile phone connection. It gave moderate bandwidth data connection to a limited range of websites. So it was universal access, but universal access to only a digital fortress where Free Basics decided what information sites were desirable and accessible to the next billion that they were trying to onboard onto the system. So this in itself is of course problematic because instead of op offering open access, um, they were offering restricted access, thus granting access, but then creating a captive audience which would only get particular kinds of information driven by for-profit companies with specific agendas. While this was problematic enough, they were also lobbying for something else. They were demanding that in order for this limited universal access to be successful, the Indian government should opt out of the global agreement to net neutrality. Now, for those of us who might not have heard of it, net neutrality is a hardware protocol uh, and an agreement that our digital internet networks cannot discriminate against data based on the content or the source of origin, right? So in other words, if we are on the same network and if you are, whether you are producing content on TikTok or TikTok or editing a, a Wikipedia entry, the net network cannot shape bandwidth or the speed based on the content. Uh, uh, as far as the network is concerned, pornography and Karl Marx are exactly the same thing. Uh, when it comes to traffic, the net is neutral and only circumscribed by the processing powers and the speeds that are negotiated between the different services. However, the good folks at Free Basics were 
arguing that in order for universal access to be achieved and for digital equality to be established, net neutrality will have to be sacrificed. So that we should start building an information system that no longer subscribes to the principles of zero rating and start shaping bandwidth, speed, and scope of access based on the nature of the content and the paid power of the people who are willing to invest in higher speed delivery. They wanted to build this special route on the information superhighway so that traffic which can pay more can get priority as well. Uh, just so that we know, this is not an India specific case, uh, Free Basics has been successfully able to lobby, lobby against net neutrality in a variety of developing countries like Philippines, Vietnam, Kenya, South Africa, Mexico, and the United States of America. Uh, where countries have been coerced into sacrificing net neutrality in the dream of universal access. This staging of internet freedom versus human rights is a tricky formulation because it positioned them as competing cases where one has to win over the other. In India, I am extremely proud and relieved uh, to let you know that a large public campaign driven by media, celebrities, comedians, and internet activists resulted into a massive public pressure on the Department of Telecommunication to reject the proposal from FreeBasic. India remains a signatory to the net neutrality agreements, which allow for tech startups, community-driven initiatives, data for social good movements, to have equal share and traffic space on the internet. I want to kind of begin with this case study for us to understand why a single point on access uh, is tricky when dealing with the idea of digital inequality. And perhaps that we need to be able to understand the larger process that is at play here. Because to ask for universal access is to understand that what we are asking for is a paradigm shift. Now, as Thomas Kuhn has pointed out in the Structural Evolutions of Science, paradigm shifts are really messy. They are not about extending the existing system into becoming better, but in fact, denying the existing system because it has failed. To say that universal access is a problem is to recognize that the current system has failed and we need to create a new one. This new system then takes the idea of a successful paradigm shift and begins with access. So access requires a large infrastructure investment, creation of resources, networks and regulations that allow people to get onto the digital systems. But access of course immediately becomes an economic question that does not take into account either the cultural or the socio-political context that continue to haunt what is called the last mile problem in internet governance. Because we know that granting access is not enough. In countries around the world, there are ICT4D projects which have built access points that are now filled with digital junk, outdated machines, unused connections, and infrastructure because they did not update, maintain, or create conditions of ownership for the intended users. So we realize very quickly that once access infrastructure has been built, we need to have presence. People need to be trained. E-literacy has to be set up. Localization of technology has to happen. In countries like India, it remains a telling sign that while the large population is semi-literate and English is a minority elite language, most of our hardware is still available only in English scripts. And most of the internet still works through clumsy translation softwares. However, um, even with these efforts at presence, it's quickly visible that granting presence does not mean that people have the voice and the power of negotiation. In fact, if we draw from our feminist studies on social media experience, the more women, for example, have found presence online, the more they have been subjected to violence, abuse, 
hostility, doxing, harassment, and threats. In fact, establishing presence for dissenting voices, dissident bodies, and non-normative identities puts them in conditions of threat and makes them precarious. And thus we realize that presence can often amplify the silence and invisibility, and what we really need is inclusion. Ah, that wonderful safe space of inclusion, that brave space, that control space that's regulated to favor those who are vulnerable and historically marginalized and underrepresented in these spaces. Unfortunately, in order for inclusion to happen, we need to create conditions of empowerment, modes of engagement that allow for people to feel safe and protected and a space of belonging. And ironically, the only inclusion policies we have within digital governance are in the forms of rights, which means that we go to the very people, the governments and the corporations who are responsible for the current state of things to ask for more rights to be protected. What started in the guise of a paradigm shift ends up asking for the older structure to provide the rights, thus extending the scope and centrality of these structures. What began as a disruption ends up as a negotiation for some rights, any rights, just anything that will make us safe and give us some access. This is the problem with the access to rights story that continues to perpetuate itself in digital inequality and inequity debates. And today I would like to propose that perhaps this framing of inequality as access needs to be changed and challenged. And instead of this access to rights paradigm, we perhaps need to start thinking of a new point of entry. And that's going to be a point of care, commons and communities. And hopefully pick, we pick up on this more in discussion, but I am very curious to see how these play out in action. Because in fact, uh, if I were to, uh, ever introduce Padmini's practice, it would be at the references of cares, commons, and communities. And I would love to see how this uh, comes up in practice and in materiality as well. So I'll stop here. Thank you very much. And we can um, hand over to the next speaker. Thank you. Thank you, Nishan. Yes. Before we go to Padmini, I would like to introduce Padmini because I actually didn't say more about your work. So as a creative practitioner, Padmini Ray Murray creates new media work. Um, which reflects her research and interests, such as Darshan Diversion, uh, a feminist video game about the Sabarimala temple controversy, visualizing cybersecurity, a project which aims to alter how cybersecurity is depicted and discussed in the media, a speculative comic on the personal data protection bill, which is called Designing for Democracy. And she is currently working on a digital performance piece funded by the Goethe Institute, uh, which is an adaptation of UNESCO's The Leader, which explores the themes of misinformation, the attention economy, and fake news. Um, and now I'll give you the spotlight. Thank you, Carmen. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's a joy and pleasure to be uh, following Nishant, who um, I love listening to and love being in conversation with. So this is uh, quite a wonderful opportunity for me. Uh, so just uh, to quickly kind of dive into uh, and actually kind of taking up from where Nishant left off. So uh, very uh, briefly, Design Beko is a collective um, kind of guided by, uh, you know, kind of feminist ethics of care. And uh, what we are very keen to do is to, as Nishant said, to try and kind of um, demonstrate how infrastructures need to be infused with care or infused and built with an ethics of care in order to ensure um, equality or equity rather. So I think as Nishant has so beautifully put it, just the promise of access does not mean that um, equality or equity is immediately granted. I think something that we have to immediately acknowledge is that 
uh, knowledge infrastructures on our devices and on the web are built to discriminate and to perpetuate structural inequalities. We've seen some excellent work coming out over the last few years with Safia Noble's um, algorithms of, of oppression, for example, which really kind of very clearly demonstrates how <clears throat> The corporate algorithm is in service of perpetuating uh, structural inequality rather than challenging it. Uh, so I think I'm going to uh, kind of demonstrate this and open this up by uh, actually kind of using a case study from our own work. Uh, this is from a project called uh, Gendering the Smart City. And um, like many other countries in the world, India is also keen to harness uh, digital technology uh, to kind of address citizen problems at scale. Uh, and I think uh, one of the kind of major forces of designing for the digital is this idea of co-design and participat participatory design and, uh, and the, you know, this kind of gesture towards empathy in order to ensure that, um, that the citizen is being represented in these kinds of technologies. Uh, but I think what is quite important to uh, kind of address is that these participatory exercises can actually be uh, exclusive in and of themselves. And so I quite like this um, kind of representation from, from an article by uh, Bord et al, which kind of talks about this idea of knowledge management configurations and how when uh, a citizenry is being represented, it's usually say the middle class who is in consultation. It is usually the educated, the elite, the literate who will be asked for their kind of vision, opinions on what would make a livable city. And therefore, uh, you know, the, the kind of idea of a resettlement colony or a jaggi jhopri colony as we call it uh, in India, an informal settlement, for example, the kind of citizens of those spaces are very unlikely to be consulted when when uh, these kind of digital technologies and interventions are being built. So as it says, there is little recognition of how people in non-standard settlement areas contribute to building cities economically or incrementally building neighborhood habitats. Uh, so I think one thing that is really important to the kind of work that we do is to kind of acknowledge the complicity of infrastructure and interface. Uh, so, you know, technology is delivered through us via the interface, and there, to my mind, hasn't been enough conversation about the role that design plays in how infrastructural inequalities are perpetuated. Uh, so the kind of inequalities, inequalities that are created by the digital divide uh, are only exacerbated sometimes when used on, say, a mobile device. That is to say, if somebody has access to a mobile device, that doesn't necessarily mean that they uh, intuitively or instinctively understand how to navigate it, uh, understand the visual vocabulary that is used, because often those design principles are based on uh, the urban elite um, or, or international kind of ideas of what design should be or what design should look like. So when it comes to something like the smart city, uh, which is obviously kind of predicated on this idea of platform governance, uh, this um, the kind of technologies that are used to kind of find the way into the city. Uh, and I think one really kind of excellent example, not in India of this is uh, the sidewalk project uh, by Google in Toronto um, is very much kind of uh, in service of a certain kind of vision of what the city has to be. It has to be, uh, it has to be quick, it has to be, uh, efficient, it has to, uh, it does not have space for certain kinds of demographics. And I think uh, there's therefore a great necessity to kind of present different kinds of alternatives to those platforms and how do we represent or how do citizens represent themselves in the face of smart city um, 
uh, smart city kind of configurations or understandings of the city. So I really like this quotation because it really kind of helps me think through um, a lot of kind of the issues that we have with say digital governance. Uh, the interface is described as the first object of, the, of mediation between the law, rights and individuals. That is that if somebody is using a mobile phone to access uh, digital governance, the interface becomes incredibly important and its design matters. You know, the language that it is written in matters. The simplicity of that language matters. The fact that it shouldn't have dark patterns matters because we have a large um, kind of population trying to access this information and understand this information. And one should, or designers should always strive to ensure that that information is the most accessible to the least literate um, and the least uh, kind of uh, exposed to uh, the digital. So what we call, for example, the next billion users or the emergent user. So I'm going to very quickly take you through a case study um, of a kind of alternative mapping that we did. This is a resettlement colony in Delhi called Madhanpur Khadar. As you can see, this is the Google map kind of view of Madhanpur Khadar. Uh, and it's, uh, I mean, anybody who's used Google Maps probably knows how um, kind of how strange it almost is in its way of kind of describing location. So you can describe it, you can you know, rate it as if it's some kind of you know, corporate property or a shop. Um, and it's often also uh, you know, fairly unrepresentative of the people who live there. Uh, and it can be, you know, the, the kind of Google map entry can be populated by anybody. Uh, and so therefore the lived experience or the embodied experience of people living in that uh, area are, is possibly not represented. So we were working with a group of um, young women uh, between the ages, ages of 18 and 25. And, uh, you know, they all had mobile phones. They were all working women, uh, but they did not use laptops. And so therefore their kind of first encounter with the digital was through the mobile phone. Uh, they live in Madhanpur Khadar and we were interested to know how they would map their area or their neighborhood. And I think something that we found very interesting is that when we uh, kind of sat down with them and kind of saw them using their phones, their uh, point of entry into the kind of universe of the internet is through the icon, the Google search icon. And it became rapidly clear that they are, because they were onboarded into a, an app led universe, the fact that a browser exists is actually something that is absolutely unfamiliar to them, which as um, Nishan kind of demonstrated in his talk, it again kind of puts us back into the same problem of that walled garden where basically Google mediates every single interaction, every single search, every single kind of uh, representation <clears throat> that, um, uh, that these people encountered through their mobile phone. And I think the reason why this is very important is that the platform uh, kind of economy and platform urbanism is completely predicated on Google Maps. And I think this has really transformed the way that you know, the city is looking at itself and that citizens are being forced to look at themselves uh, with regards to this, the places that they live in. So I think this kind of, this, uh, this quotation is very telling. Um, it says that you know, maps help us search for places that we are interested in, pinpoint their locations, optimize routes to get there, understand surrounding neighborhoods better and communicate better with others. When maps cannot answer these questions, we rely on other sources that may be costly, time intensive or incomplete. And I think it's very interesting that, you know, these words costly, time intensive are, you know, words that basically kind of speak to you know, capitalist um, ideals, right? It's not it's not somebody who is just kind of looking to explore a neighborhood. It's basically for, you know, the Ubers and the Olas to kind of use, and even for governments to use in order to make 
you know, a city, a smarter city for whatever um, kind of value that smartness might embody. So the way that we kind of chose to approach this uh, kind of alternative mapping uh, exercise was to stage what we called an analog editathon. So um, my choice was to use Wikipedia as a platform because, uh, because of the nature of Wikipedia and how it's represented on online in Google search results. Uh, I kind of felt like it may be an interesting and slightly subversive intervention to actually have have a description of Madanpur Khadr, the neighborhood that these uh, women live in, uh, actually kind of written about by these women. Madanpur Khadr being a, a kind of resettlement colony does not figure in Wikipedia, it is not written about, and therefore we put it basically on the map, so to speak, by doing this editathon. Uh, the girls uh, were better versed in Hindi, so we kind of did this kind of post-it-led kind of editathon exercise because they couldn't edit easily on their phones uh, because of both uh, issues of bandwidth and also the, the Wikipedia interface. Uh, and then we kind of, um, with their, with their kind of uh, inputs, kind of created a Wikipedia entry about Madhubur uh, Khader. And this is just a kind of example of us in action, kind of taking notes. These are all things that the young women, women told us about the areas that they live in, about the kind of uh, festivals that are observed there, about the uh, political kind of space, uh, you know, NGOs that operate there, etc. And then finally, we kind of arrived at this uh, Wikipedia article. But I do want to just finish by saying uh, something about uh, again, you know, the promises of access and how those can be thwarted. So Wikipedia can be imagined as a space that is, you know, kind of very open in terms of access. Um, you, know, it, you know, anybody can contribute, uh, you know, it's, it's free to use. Uh, it's not behind uh, any kind of paywall. But, uh, but the limitations of Wikipedia are interesting. I think firstly, of course, there's the kind of problems with things like uh, Kind of vandalism of accounts. And, uh, you know, you can possibly see here that this kind of little addition here uh, was not something that we had put in and has been put in by somebody else. But I think a lot more importantly, uh, it also does not acknowledge um, oral citations as legit legitimate citations. And I think, you know, that speaks very much to the way that the digital kind of thinks of knowledge and that oral or informal knowledges um, kind of that are not codified in kind of written language are not considered on par with published or written sources. And this is obviously a great disadvantage when you're trying to talk about a country like India where much of our knowledge is still not codified, is still um, in, in different languages, but cannot be cited according to Wikipedia's rules. So I think this is kind of another example of how, again, the promise of universal access is thwarted, you know, the devil is in the details. Uh, and yes, I think, you know, I'll end there and hopefully uh, we can address this uh, further as we go. I'm happy to talk more about the project uh, if anyone would like. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Padmini. So I see that we already have a couple of questions in the chat, but before we go there, I would like to ask Nishant and Patmini if you have questions for each other, or is there something that you would, <laughs> I don't know, uh, answer a little bit more in depth to each other's presentations? I mean, um, it's always always fun to see the work that uh, Padmini is doing. And I, I, was, I, I don't have a question per se, because I do know this work. Um, but I was wondering, Padmini, if you want to kind of elaborate a little bit more about this problem of data, right? I mean, the the uh, the citational politics of Wikipedia is obviously one clear example about how anything that is not validated by specific structures of modern science and academia and so on, 
immediately gets disqualified as either primitive or not important or something. And I know that one of the most interesting design interventions has in fact been in the process of how do you produce information which does not become coded data. And I was wondering if you want to pull that out a little bit more. Sure, thanks Thanks for that. Uh, so I think uh, two, two things that I kind of want to point to again. Um, so again, I'm, I'm really sorry to bring Google up here as a kind of some kind of uh, bogeyman, but I'm afraid I have to for the sake of this example. So I think, uh, you know, they've been doing a lot of work in the space of next million users uh, and they have, you know, they've been creating digital toolkits, et cetera, to uh, kind of make you know, kind of uh, interactions and the experience of the next million users more pleasurable uh, and useful uh, and easy, basically, and intuitive. Um, but I think what something that is very telling is that these conversations almost never uh, say anything about consent and privacy. Uh, they've, do they've done a lot to kind of fund uh, projects to support women, uh, women getting online. Uh, but there's also the reality of the fact that women coming online is something incredibly fraught in India still. So you know, 43%, you know, there's a gap of 43% between kind of male ownership and female ownership of mobile phones in India, which is the lowest in the region. Uh, and I think, you know, Google's, you know, kind of good efforts notwithstanding, it's very much a kind of way of ring fencing, you know, circumscribing this, this kind of area and not uh, kind of encouraging, you know, kind of challenges to the kind of data regime that obviously Google is, uh, you know, kind of forcing for want of a better word, these um, kind of users into. Uh, and I think something that often gets lost in, again, conversations of consent and privacy is that even notionally what those two words mean for Indian audiences in Indian languages is something that we have just not had a conversation about at all. So, you know, of course, we all know that everybody takes yes with, you know, terms, <laughs> you know, terms and conditions. But here we have a, you know, more, much more complex question where different communities, because of their different conceptual models and different linguistic models think of consent or privacy as very, very different things. And we, you know, in an ideal world, need to have a conversation to understand, you know, why and how, you know, these concepts might matter to these communities and in what ways can we make it matter? Because again, uh, you know, speaking of care, the, the harm of, you know, kind of uh, a kind of wholesale you know, data handover to a corporation is something that you know most users are still very unaware of. Uh, so yeah, just you know, speaking to that, I think that's one of the the largest dangers that we're up against. Thank you very much for the answer, Permini. So Lynette Taylor asks, um, I think this is one is directly for Nishant. What do you make of data literacy as an object of funding and activity in relation to the problems that you have outlined in your presentation? Lynette, it's very nice not to see you, but at least have you present in the text. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, thank you for that question. I think it's a very telling one and thanks for bringing that up because this entire data literacy project has been so constructed in a neo-colonial trope of identifying people as primitive, people as um, in need of rehabilitation, people who are stupid because they do not know how to navigate these specific informational systems. And I think that's a that's going to be a challenge that we are going to face. But there are some really good examples. So one, in fact, is the team that uh, Kaelin works with, which is Data Active at the University of Amsterdam. They have been doing some fantastic work on trying to understand what data from the margins look like, uh, what happens when data does not look like data, and then what are the ways in which you can, in fact, uh, approach data holders, not as people who need data literacy, but we need to change our systems to accommodate for the ways in which 
uh, their informational neighborhoods work, right? Um, I would be, uh, it would be remiss of me not to cite uh, Anita Sechan, whose work on network peripheries has been also fantastic because she's been trying to think about the peripheries of data economies and systems, uh, specifically looking at feminist modes of engagement, which sometimes uh, look like they are um, uh, socializing activities like knitting and cooking and baking, but how within that are coded different kinds of social and political information systems and the ways in which they need to be considered within that. Uh, and I right now work with this wonderful group uh, at the Association of Progressive Communication called FERN, uh, the Feminist Internet Research Network. And I think one of the most interesting examples which came from a researcher in um, uh, in Nigeria and Kenya, her name is Nima. And Nima asked a, a, a brilliant question for me. She said, the question has never been about data literacy. The question has been about data format literacy. Um, that data and information have always survived and proliferated in many, many different ways. And what we have done is we have privileged only very specific kinds of data formats. And those data formats are the ones we continuously champion and support as if that's the only form of literacy. So maybe we need to start thinking about a data ownership as opposed to data literacy. And within that, uh, what are the kinds of uh, political conversations going to, uh, which are going to emerge? I think that's going to be a, a space of inquiry when not enough attention has been given to. And that's why I kind of keep on bringing it back to the notion of the data commons, because that I think is a more interesting beginning point. So not to target one specific community and saying, can we teach how to write in Microsoft Word, uh, but actually uh, targeting a community. And that's the kind of work that Padmini does is to say, we want to make you recognize that you are holders of data. And then can we help you figure out what are kinds of data practices you want to engage with? So. Yeah, thanks for the question. And I hope this is a good beginning point for that. Thank you, Nishant. I don't know if Padmini wants to complement um, this answer somehow. Uh, so no, I, I think um, let's go on because there's loads of questions. So maybe I'll bring it up, yeah. Then I, so I see that the Venus question is actually really connected to the last point that we made. So I'm gonna go for that one. Um, and it sounds a little bit repetitive perhaps because she's asking are, whether we're putting too much onus on the individual community by focusing on literacies and citizens, which is something that Nishan already addressed. But I think that what's more relevant of, of her question is that she's also asking whether we should hold companies and governments responsible for the environment that they are creating uh, for us and how can we have them become the two sides of the coin. So just uh, bring this uh, discussion more to an institutional or corporate uh, environment. Uh, I can I can begin and then maybe Padmini can jump in. I, I think Devina, again, thank you uh, for really charting out where the deadlock is, right? And, and for me, the deadlock is not really about putting accountability either on the individual or the community or the government and private actors who often form these public-private partnerships for establishing different digital ecosystems. The, the problem is that we have continuously made this distinction between internet governance and human rights governance. The links between the two have never been established. So in my case with Facebook and the universal access and net neutrality, universal access is a fundamental human right. Net neutrality is an internet right. Both of them were presented as competing against each other as if one of them has to survive, right? We continuously do this decoupling between internet governance modes and human governance modes, and we don't often see the relationship between the two. 
So when the um, free basics was kind of launching out in India and people were saying, yeah, net neutrality, it's fine, you can sacrifice it. You suddenly start realizing that nobody's made the connection that letting go of net neutrality meant that the very strong civil society that India has would essentially lose uh, a space for civic action online because everything that they do would just be slowed down. Right? There was a possibility that small organizations, community-driven organizations, people, people's movements like uh, the wonderful group in Bangalore, which was doing data for social good, for example, would no longer be able to afford to be heard, even though they are present online. So I think that's where the response, the, the uh, focus might be, is to really go back to saying, is internet governance and human rights governance, what are the kinds of crossovers that we need to do? And then we hold you know, WhatsApp accountable, not about whether there is a blue check or not. We hold WhatsApp accountable of saying, how are you actually engaging with questions of safety and security of people, which is caused by misinformation, as opposed to just providing um, technological solution to a problem that's not technological. Like, I think that, that, that interplay is something that needs to be expanded more on. Um, but maybe Padmini, you want to jump in. Yes. Uh, yeah. Thanks for that, Nishan. Um, I think where I'd like to kind of step in with this is also, the, again, the role that digital design plays. And I think very quickly to kind of recap why, you know, say Design Beku is, you know, kind of focuses on kind of decolonial approaches, so to speak, is that I think it's very necessary to kind of realize that design education, for example, in this country is uh, kind of shaped by this kind of, you know, the inheritance from, you know, Bauhaus tradition, you know, the NID National Institute of Design was founded on, you know, this kind of principle, this document that was uh, written by Charles and Ray Eames. And now that kind of approach, which has obviously percolated into design education, has been further exacerbated um, by the kind of onslaught of kind of the idea of digital product design from Silicon Valley. Uh, which means that we have certain kind of uh, kinds of ways of working with uh, communities as say design researchers, as uh, user researchers that um, you know kind of very uh, uncritically uh, accept things like say design thinking as a paradigm. Uh, and you know the whole kind of notion that you know any kind of design thinking exercise first of all uh, kind of results in empathy. I mean I, I find that very uh, kind of difficult to reconcile with because I think it's quite uh, disingenuous to say that we can be we can feel or empathize or be put ourselves in the shoes of say the most marginalized in this country. Uh, and also this idea or this notion that, you know, to design, to create something via design thinking is to arrive at a solution, right? So I think both of these notions kind of directly kind of feed into uh, digital product design, which obviously is kind of, again, as I said in my talk, you know, absolutely kind of at the heart of how technology is delivered. Right. So I think if there's, you know, a role to be played, I think, you know, designers also need to step up to kind of, uh, you know, kind of advocate for, you know, reducing, say, the use of dark patterns to mislead users or citizens, for example, or, um, you know, to kind of ensure that the research practices that they are doing or with their kind of communities that they're trying to serve are not extractive. We have great problems at the moment in this country with uh, a lot of new products kind of flooding the market around fintech or health, uh, all of which promise great things and again promise access and equity but you know kind of while giving the, that with one hand is taking away data on the other with the other hand and there is absolutely no kind of ethical codes or standards that designers are being held to when they're doing this kind of research which is profoundly extractive so I think um, you know while we should and must hold kind of companies and governments accountable I think 
it's also kind of very much at least kind of in our role as designers to think about how do we ensure that what we're asking for is supported from or supported by the kind of design decisions that we're making and taking. Uh, and lastly, just kind of lead, kind of letting the communities that we're working with lead the imagination of what the digital is. There are many imaginaries of the digital in India which are not at all, uh, you know, kind of uh, kind of concomitant with, say, what's being thought of in San Francisco. And I think, you know, it's very exciting to kind of let those imaginaries kind of surface and then see how we can build on those imaginaries to uh, kind of build, build things that are for the commons and are truly equitable in their use of design. Thank you very much, Ranmi. There are a couple of questions about um, the reference that Nishant made to CARE, but before we go into that, because my question is connected to that one as well, I just want to go first to Alex's question because I think it's a bit connected to what Patmini was just uh, closing with. He asks, um, how do you see the outreach efforts of projects like OpenStreetMap that aims to challenge top-down mapping powers, even if still relying on particular Western and Cartesian mapping ontologies? Right. Uh, yeah, great question. I think, I mean, the pro problem is that um, it's also kind of how these representations are firstly algorithmically mediated, of course, as, as I brought up in my talk. But yes, I think there's definitely a much, much greater need to, again, kind of expand the kind of, I guess, the mental models or the, you know, expand upon the mental models of the people who are using these maps. So, you know, going back to my, my talk, uh, one lovely kind of uh, point when we when we did the exercise was that the girls spoke of their neighborhood in terms of samosa chalk and jalebi chalk, both of which are food food items and so it was basically areas you know where this food was available and that's how they defined their space now that's obviously a very different sort of mapping than a kind of cartesian mapping right it's an embodied it's a lived body lived mapping and i think that's why i kind of think of this as a kind of feminist exercise as well that it really matters who you are as a body and how your encounter or experience of the city shapes your experience and that can't be captured by this kind of you know notion of you know the kind of top-down uh, view. I don't know if Nishan wants to uh, complement that question. Um, move to it. No, I think I think that that's quite a comprehensive um, reflection on that, and I see there are other kind of trends coming up which we would also want to just address. Yeah. So Thomas, uh, thank you, Nishan, um, and thank you for a minute. Thomas asking. Um, he says he really likes your call for a care compensating community, but he asks, how do you see the opportunities for this around the globe? Uh, because India has a strong civil society, which makes it feasible to develop as a space of inclusion, but these conditions are perhaps not uh, present in the rest of the world. How, how do we address this? He's asking. Yeah, Thomas, I guess this is going to need 20 more years of my life to think through. Uh, difficult questions. But I think there are a couple of things which are obvious that yes, while India has had a legacy of a strong civil society, we want to acknowledge the fact that the civil society in India has also been very skewed. It's fairly gentrified. It's located on very specific kinds of issues. Uh, Padmini and I, for example, can um, kick off a lot of, let's say marginalization uh, uh, boxes if you want to do an exercise like that. But we also represent still an extremely elite a uh, fairly, uh, uh, what, what in India would be called a savarna, which is the to do with the caste politics in the country and so on. So we have different kinds of elite embodiments and a lot of civil society work in India has continuously, in fact, 
uh, favored those kinds of more philanthropy, charity sort of spaces, which has worked under patronage, right? Which is why it's easier to shut down so many initiatives because they're dependent on patronage uh, and, and favor of political and financial kinds. But I think there are three things that are coming up. One, across the globe, we are recognizing that the promise that the digital technologies came up with, that uh, this is going to be the new digital commons, that promise is now hollow. We know that the digital has not, in fact, contributed to the expansion of uh, civic action, but it has, in fact, led to more regulation of civic speech uh, and free speech. And I think that's something that needs to be taken into account. The second, um, which um, comes to the notion of the commons, is, in fact, uh, an affordance of the digital, which I'm excited by, is that we do have the to produce narrative change. Um, this is perhaps the first time where we are able to counter narrative action by narrative change practices, right? And focusing on what are the new kinds of narratives that need to be produced, which is a little bit about how a question gets framed, but also then uh, translates into, are we going to make it into a narrative of fighting against or fighting for? And I think this is going to be critical because fighting against necessarily uh, leads to a polarization, whereas fighting for would lead what Karen Barad would call an interactive politics or what Donna Haraway would otherwise have mentioned as politics of affinity. And I think there is a, there is a space there to go back to this politics of affinity in some way. Um, and the third one is really uh, from my own, uh, let's say, fieldwork. I remember going to a workshop representing a, a, a global funder uh, to Latin America, working with young people doing you know, transformation and practices using digital technologies. And like all good funders, people wanted to give them phones and people wanted to give them infrastructure and they wanted to give them server space. And these hundred young people looked at us and said, we have all that. We don't need any of it. And then we are like, oh, so we have all this money to give to you. What do we do with you? And they said, do you know any lawyers? Right? because that's where we, what we don't have. Can you please come to us and ask us where we need care, as opposed to presuming that what we need is access infrastructure. And I thought that was a pivotal move in the entire funding program itself, because it said, oh yeah, okay, what can we do to you? There was a similar case in Thailand where a bunch of young bloggers came to us and they said, so we said, what do you need? We started asking that question, what, what do you need for care? And they said, we need bail money. Because periodically, every month or so, one of us is going to get jailed. And the reason why we don't get out of it is because we don't have money to bail ourselves. So can you please start a blogger's bail, bailout program and so on? So just identifying that, you know, um, just because somebody is identified with data and information doesn't mean that they are data and information. That there is this entire lived reality of bodies out there and it's messy and it's complicated. And can we extend these care works back into our digital practices because they seem to be separated otherwise? Like that's the directions I would I would want to think through more. Thank you, Nishan. That that was a great answer. Um, I don't know if but Minnie wants to complement something there. I can't top that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I I, um, I think that uh, the question that I had also connects with a little, a little bit with what Nishan was saying just now. Um, I was a, a bit. Um, surprised when and you say that uh, yeah the idea of access uh, to, to think about things in terms of access to the rights can perpetuate inequality 
Uh, and then you request instead care, commons, and communities. But then I was wondering whether do they have space in institutionalized democratic systems, or what is the space of uh, commons and communities? How, if if there is a space, how can we institutionalize it? Or if it's not within the democratic system, what type of other um, institutions do we need to uh, set up or to talk to? Uh, what type of actors should deliver this care and commons in the communities? Um. So I. That's a good question and it's a tough one because I don't want to pretend that um, all the institutions that we work with are failing, they're not. Um, I think the uh, reason why there is so much need for thinking about cares and commons and communities is because the orientation of institutional action uh, has been shaped entirely almost by the neoliberal rhetoric of digitization, right? That. Uh, uh, in India, for example, when we set up our first e-literacy programs, for example, uh, they were oriented towards building a global workforce for the outsourcing industry, as opposed to, in fact, producing global tech innovators, developers, and people who want to engage with societies in a certain way. So I don't want to uh, make this into this um, naive manifesto of down with institutions and let's rebuild new ones because the new ones are going to have almost exactly the same problems perhaps amplified. Uh, and I also don't want to do away with the legacy of some very strong civil society activism that has worked very hard, for example, in, in, in uh, feminism in India to fight for women's rights, to fight for gender and sexual safety in public places, in workplaces, within homes and so on. Um, the, the call I'm making is that we need to realize that increasingly, with if we if we make technology and technology access as the central focus point, then all of our actions are also monitored and evaluated by how much access did we give and how much interest did we build. And in that, a lot of the work that these institutions do, which is care work, which is community work, immediately gets discounted or not counted as important, or nobody wants to fund it. Uh, it's one of the questions that a lot of us who are in academia have also been facing um, in the COVID realm, saying, oh, we don't need schools anymore. We can just teach on Zoom. Let's just digitize everything. And then you need to remind them that information dissemination is perhaps about 30% of what I do in my classroom. That the rest of the 70% is care work, community work, collegial work, and trying to figure out how do we live together and work together. So it's really developing these new indicators and saying that, of course, we need access. Of course, we need universal access. Yes, we need infrastructure. But those are smaller parts. And what happens to all the other things which get kind of thrown off the table is what I would call care work, community work, and commons work. And that new indicators need to be developed to be able to qualify it. And a transition has to be made from intensity measurement to, uh, sorry, scale measurement to intensity measurement. Because when it comes to access, it's a question of scale. When it comes to questions of care, it's a, it's a question of uh, intensity. And how do we bring that together is, I think, is a collective task that we need to uh, set out for ourselves. Thank you, Nishant. I think we have space for one last question, and I'm going to make it mine <laughs> to that many. Um, because, and, and also perhaps stepping into what Nishant just said, I think that it was very telling also for the topic of our discussion today that the example that you provided of how to regain agency in a digitized context was actually a super analog practice with this, the, the analog editathon that you uh, have. 
So I was wondering if you could just tell us a bit more of the strategies and, and what other strategies might be out there that are also analog, but are actually just a, a matter of reclaiming agency in a digitized world. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so I think uh, what we find often is that it's really, I mean, I think it's quite uh, easy to fall into, you know, designerly ways, <laughs> you know, kind of, you know, say kind of workshopping or, you know, that kind of thing. And I think um, one of the first things that we came up against in the field, and this is one of my colleagues uh, called Naveen Bagalkot, uh, he was working with health navigators in rural um, Bangalore. Um, and he went to these health navigators and they were trying to kind of uh, find solutions to how to reduce that kind of food intake for diabetic patients. And uh, the first thing that he gave them was like pen and paper and no one wanted to draw. They were like, oh no, drawing is for children, drawing is for babies. I drew when I was a child, I'm not gonna draw now. <laughs> but they also uh, don't, don't write. Uh, so we had to kind of really kind of work with them to kind of understand kind of what, what was their kind of um, easiest way of uh, kind of manifesting their, their beliefs, their uh, uses, their, you know, the information that they had gathered because these, these are women who are kind of immensely knowledgeable and they're kind of repositories of data really, right? Or, but of what, 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 you know, we call warm data right like this is qualitative data this is data that they have developed or created over years of interaction with all of these families and i think one of the most beautiful examples of this in action that we've just seen very recently in india is um during covid uh, contact tracing so there was uh, you know arugya situ which is an app that has been written about data active as well uh, which was the contact tracing app but many of the health front frontline workers that we spoke to and talked to we understood that the way that they talk about their practices is actually very, very valuable. So just kind of recording and being in conversation with them. But secondly, their own kind of capacity to do what is pretty much manual contact tracing. So actually, because they know who is likely to hang out with whom, who, you know, what kind of relationships these families in neighborhoods have. So they were in fact much more effective than, you know, the app, which of course, again, requires layers of access, requires, you know, a phone firstly, secondly, just the ability to even understand what it is and how to sign on to it. Uh, it requires, uh, you know, for um, an Aadhaar card. So if you don't have that, you can't use it. So there are all of these limitations which obviously these women health workers just by you know working so closely with this community completely bypassed by just drawing upon their own information and their own understanding of the community. And so we often find that, uh, and coming back to actually something that Nishant said, that this practice of re-narration, which is something uh, our colleague uh, T.B. Dinesh um, from Janastu in Bangalore, he, he kind of works a lot on. And this notion of that, you know, the, the kind of narratives that are available to us, say online or on a website or whatever, can be re-narrated and kind of be treated as an annotation on existing knowledge. And I think we don't do enough of that, that kind of annotation. So if somebody is encountering a technology or you know, a piece of information, what is the response and the reaction of the user and recording that so that it then informs say the design of the technology is something that we're not doing enough of. And so I think it's a question again of, you know, coming back to what I was saying about like, uh, you know, the varied imaginations of what it means to use technology in this country is first of all, not only isolated to the digital, um, you know, technology is kind of an everyday technology. There are many everyday technologies that are being used, but it's also kind of how technology is being used in unexpected ways that are worth kind of, you know, taking into account when we are building technologies and kind of maybe, you know, kind of using those to inform what we're building rather than, 
you know, some kind of notion or assumption uh, that's not really founded in our context or reality. Thank you very much. Okay, so I think we are uh, out of time, actually. Then I just uh, would like to thank uh, Nishant and Padmini for being here today. It was really interesting. I loved the discussion. And also thanks to all the people who um, attended. And thanks for all the questions. Thank you.